now, I'd like to introduce you to tonight's moderator, Mr. Kevin Roderick. Kevin Roderick covers the media scene for LA Observed, the blog he started in 2003, and as a weekly commentator on KCRW. He is a former intern, reporter, and editor at the Los Angeles Times, was the Los Angeles bureau chief for the late Industry Standard Magazine, was a contributing writer at Los Angeles Magazine, and has written for Smithsonian, the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles, and other publications. Hopefully soon, Sokolo Public Square will be along those. Please give a very warm welcome to Kevin Roderick. Well, thank you, Dulcie, and uh, thanks everybody for coming. Boy, they just turned the lights on. Boy, we don't even, you're gonna have to make noise every now and then and we'll know that you're there, because right now we can't tell. Um, I get to introduce David, so let me just uh, bear with me a minute while I read what they wrote for me. <laughs> Or did you write it for me? Oh, okay. I worked on it. David Falkenflick has been NPR's media correspondent since 2004. He previously covered media and politics for the Baltimore Sun and edited the 2011 book Page One Inside the New York Times and the Future of Journalism. He's covered Murdoch and News Corp extensively and has been a frequent commentator on the hacking scandal in both the US and the UK. His new book is Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old Media Empires. Uh, it's great to have you here, David. Thanks very much for having me here. Back in Southern California. I'm back in my home. Um, you know, before we try to answer the question, did Rupert Murdoch save journalism, and that's really before you try to answer the question, because that's, that's why you're here. That's journalism hashtag, right? Yes. Let's set the stage just a little bit. Uh, you've covered the media for 10 plus years before NPR at the Baltimore Sun, as we said, and, and covering the media means covering Rupert Murdoch, covering US media. Um, Rupert Murdoch and company did not cooperate in this book project. Uh, how far did they go to stop you, if at all? Uh, nothing reprehensible. Uh, they they, they uh, decided after taking some months to think about my inquiries and requests, uh, almost a, probably a year ago now, uh, decided not to participate. I had asked to speak to Mr. Murdoch and his family members and senior executives, and they said uh, no thanks. And, you know, they cited a number of reasons. Uh, there are these criminal proceedings happening in London that are uh, pretty real and are of some of their uh, top uh, former lieutenants there. Uh, there's, uh, which we'll get into. Which we can get bit. into. There was a book uh, in which they offered great access to a, a very lively magazine writer, uh, Michael uh, Wolf, who's now with uh, USA Today mm -hmm. and The Guardian, and uh, they felt burned by you know, the extent to which they revealed themselves to him. Uh, but they, they were also concerned about, you know, what a look uh, in the wake of the hacking scandal might look like, not with legal implications, but just in terms of public look. So there were a number of executives of various uh, uh, arms and outlets uh, in, the, in the larger uh, Murdoch realm uh, said, we'd love to talk to you, we can't, uh, you know, the words come out from the big dogs. Uh, I had set up to talk with one of the most senior executives within the corporation, and uh, uh, within 24 hours of our long-planned interview, uh, he got a call from one of Murdoch's top aide and said, you cannot do this. Hmm. Now, luckily, having you know, walked this beat for a while, having done a lot of stories, I, I not only had a, a reservoir of knowledge and of, of interviews banked up, but I also persevered with a lot of very senior figures and a lot of people from the, you know, the reporter level up to the top executive ranks and was able to get them uh, not only to talk to me, but rather patiently walk me through a lot of key moments, I think, in the, in, in the story I try to tell in the book. So for the most part, you know, your, your pets are still alive and all of that. Your things yeah, are okay. No. Okay. Well, that's good. That's <laughs> always a good sign. 
So you make the case in the book that Rupert Murdoch's impact on media almost can't be overstated. So just, I know most people here are familiar with him, but what's the short version? Why should we care about, about Rupert Murdoch? Well, I, th I think that Murdoch is pretty unquestionably at the moment, uh, uh, and for, for the last several decades, been the, the most influential and important uh, media figure in the English-speaking world. Hmm. Uh, you have a guy who's holding, uh, and it's a, he, it's now split in two, but his, his, it's a publicly traded company that he's run, uh, and yet he runs it like a finan uh, family concern uh, uh, with reason. He's structured in such a way where he and his, uh, his uh, children essentially control uh, almost a pure majority of votes in such a way where it's impossible to hold him in check. But uh, they have holdings that span uh, six continents. You know, uh, the, the company uh, uh, controls uh, 65 to 70 percent of major newspaper circulation in his native Australia. Uh, until the scandal, they controlled 40% uh, of national s newspaper circulation in the UK, which is really a national newspaper market. That's now down to about 36, 38%, but that's still, you know, in American minds, uh, quite astonishing. Uh, you know, the most powerful private broadcaster in the UK in, in what's called Sky or B Sky B, mm -hmm. uh, Fox News here, uh, FX, uh, The Simpsons, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Wall Street Journal, The New York Post. He shapes uh, politics and public perceptions, particularly through his newspapers at uh, plus Fox News at both a high and a low level, these mass market tabloids that we can talk more about uh, that reflect his populist center-right kind of Reagan-Democrat sensibility and uh, you know, the way in which he reach, reaches uh, elites and decision makers and thought influencers through papers like the Wall Street Journal and the Times of London and the Australian. So he's playing a sophisticated game both to influence public policy, to show the connection that he has, to make money, and also to keep making money by influencing uh, people in powerful positions to help him on his uh, more lucrative side, the, the foxes of the world and the skies of the world. Well, luckily, in going about your book, you had some really colorful characters to work with, and, and no more colorful than, than Rupert himself. You talk about him that he's really bigger than any one country. He's, you know, he, he got citizenship here so that he could uh, get involved in, in television here. Um, and He's a man of the world, but yet he's still kind of motivated. In reading your book, it seems like he's motivated a lot by uh, past and present uh, allegiances to family. How, sure. Is, is he a, is he a daddy's boy or a mommy's boy? Or what's the? I don't. I mean, I think he's his own man. Hmm. Uh, but I, I would say that. But family is important. Family is hugely important to him. Uh, he is, as you say, in some ways beyond borders. Uh, he's mm -hmm. uh, both a creator. I mean, he saw opportunities. He took these uh, sort of weaker television stations in all these markets and strung them together at a time when people thought that they you know, weren't valuable into a network that became the most popular in the country for, for, for many years. Uh, he did similar thing in Britain where he wasn't awarded uh, one of the early first satellite television channels for Britain. And so he beamed up a satellite from studios in, uh, in Luxembourg and <laughs> beamed it down from a different satellite in the sky and you know, got people a relatively inexpensive uh, satellite dishes they could put at their homes. And you know, the Brits kind of just blew their minds. They said, well, we didn't say you could do that. And he said, well, I don't care. You know, and that's uh, one of his real hallmarks is he creates, uh, he innovates through circumvention. And it's kind of admirable. I mean, I think offerings are much better in both countries as a result. But, you know, the fine observance of the niceties of the law and regulation is not his fine suit uh, or strong suit. But well, it, it seems like he likes to also tweak authority, that that's absolutely that's he likes to needle the elites. Where does that come from? Well, Rosie? you mentioned family, and that's got oh. it exactly right. You know, his father was uh, a very respected uh, political journalist in Australia, uh, and, uh, you know, he was the guy who revealed, if you recall the movie Gallipoli back in the days when we were allowed to like Mel Gibson movies, uh, uh, it was about this terrible 
ill-fated <laughs> Ill, uh, uh, campaign in World War I where British commanders were sent you know, Australian and New Zealand troops to the, to the slaughter. And uh, his father wrote this uh, uh, missive, essentially, to the leading Australian uh, political figures, saying what had happened, that the Australians had been betrayed by their colonial overlord, in a sense, uh, in doing this. And this helped forge a sense of identity as Australia worked its way toward independence and nationhood. Uh, uh, he got some of the details wrong, as Rupert Murdoch later acknowledged, but it propelled Keith Murdoch, his father, to fame, uh, and uh, Murdoch, many years later, formed a production company to make sure that movie got <laughs> made in a way to cement his father's reputation as well with the younger generation. But he always had the sense that his father was never given the credit he was due, and this propelled him. He felt his father had been essentially screwed out of some of his holdings just before his father's death in the early 50s, and Murdoch made his way, you know, you or I might think he was a very wealthy young man. His father was a knight. You know, his mother lived at this huge estate outside Melbourne, the second largest city in Australia. But he had to make his way by being give, given only a, a daily paper in Adelaide, a much essentially forgotten city on the southern coast of Australia. And uh, he was sort of nurtured this sense that the, the elites, that the powers that be behind closed doors were screwing him and his family over. And this drove him, uh, propelled him to show that he understood newspapers better, he understood the common Australian better, uh, he connected with them, he wasn't going to be uh, elitist about what they should be reading. He said, as long as they wanted to read something in a newspaper, it was public service to provide it. Mm -hmm. And he used that, that, that sense of grievance, but also that sense of connection with what he felt with the common man's impulse was what really was his own gut instinct. Uh, he used that to propel him to great success in Australia. Well, the sense of, of being motivated by the feeling of being disrespected runs throughout the book. In fact, you, you say that, the, that Murdoch and, and I guess more the executives in his company sort of define themselves by who they think their enemies are, whether they really are their enemies, whether it's the BBC or unions or, or whoever. Yeah, no, it, it's very distinctive culture uh, f uh, for this company. Uh, it comes from him. Uh, it's a strong sense of uh, kind of Australians first. Hmm. Uh, they're Australians throughout top positions. I think of, uh, I think, David Hill, who's over Fox uh, Sports and is helping to really lead this new Fox Sports One hmm. uh, competitor to ESPN out here in L.A., uh, he's an Australian. Uh, Call Allen, who's the head of uh, the New York Post, is an Australian. Robert Thompson, the new head of, and CEO of, uh, of News Corp, the slimmed down newspaper branch of the family's holdings, uh, who was before that the top editor at the Wall Street Journal. He's an Australian. And he also has some Brits in there as well, but it's a very interesting mix. And it, it you know, I, I, I sort of talk about this under the rubric of mateship, which is kind of an Australian notion of fraternity that transcends anything you might have seen at college, uh, where you look out for your mates. If your mate needs a job, you get it for him. If your mate's in a brawl, you fight without caring about what the cause was. Uh, built on things like Gallipoli and experiences during World War II in prison camps, basically, where the Australian guys often risk their own lives to save one another. And Mateship is also defined on who's inside the circle and then by who's outside the circle. And you can see that. In, in Britain, you know, Murdoch went and he turned failing newspapers, the, the News of the World and The Sun, into very successful, uh, brawling, combative, uh, center-right, uh, pugilistic publications that reflected his sensibility greatly. And uh, they called him the Dirty Digger. <laughs> and it was a way of diminishing him as an Australian, Digger being Australian, also as a tabloid kind of scandal monger, even though there were certainly other tabloids there as well. Uh, and he thought, oh, these guys are locking me out. Now, again, he's a guy who went to Oxford 
His father was a knight. You know, he is a newspaper proprietor. He forces his way into the top ranks by buying the Times of London, which has never made him a cent in the 32 years he's owned it, and the Sunday Times. But still, somehow, even though prime ministers are coming to meet him halfway across the world, and, you know, he goes and dines with world leaders all the time, he thinks the elites are against him. And it's a crucial thing. It's not exactly a rosebud moment, but it's a crucial thing uh, from very early on where he feels that he and his fellow Australians basically are never going to get the time of day. Hmm. Were they right about that? I don't think that's correct at all. I think if you look at the way in which power has bent to him, he has essentially sees that the establishment is against him, but he created his own establishment. You know, he has the former head of Spain, uh, uh, Prime Minister Anzar, on his corporate board. He has uh, Viet Dinh, the former assistant attorney general under President Bush, as on his board and one of his senior advisors. Joel Klein, former assistant attorney general under President Clinton, is one of his top executives over his educational division. You know, he meets with Michael Bloomberg, a centrist liberal you know, Republican type, you know, mogul, another billionaire, to talk about immigration reform and charter school reform. You know, this is not a guy who's being shut out of things. It's really fascinating to watch, though. Human, uh, uh, human gestures mean so much. 1995, Tony Blair uh, flies to a small island off the coast of Australia named Hayman's Island. And uh, there's a corporate retreat there for News Corp. And he flies there. He's the opposition leader, desperately wants to throw out uh, the conservatives and the elections that are going to happen two years later. And he flies there, and he <coughs> makes no promises. But what he does is instead of meeting Murdoch at one of his properties in London across town, he flies 10,000 miles to say, sir, I- I'm going to be able to do business with you. Uh, and uh, Murdoch's genius with his papers is that unlike, say, the Telegraph or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, you really don't always know where they're going to end up. They toggle between center-left politicians, centrist, not pure liberals, but centrist figures of the left, with conservative figures on the right. And by toggling back and forth, politicians of both parties have hope that they might just get that support. And uh, he supported Hillary Clinton when she ran for Senate in 2000, a a centrist brand of Democrat that he felt he could do business with. Well, you've written about there's there's five myths that we all have about Rupert Murdoch that a lot of people have. And one of them is that, that he's really not a, a personage of the far right. He's not. He's much less uh, conservative than the most strident voices on Fox News. He's much less conservative than Roger Ailes is. And he's much less conservative than the Wall Street Journal editorial page uh, prior to his acquiring the Wall Street Journal. You know, I talk to reporters at the Journal and they say, well, we kind of got a break on this whole mainstream media is left wing thing because the editorial page is so conservative that it gives us cover. Uh, But uh, he, you know, He, uh, for example, in 2007 announced that he would make News Corp carbon neutral and that he would have a five-year deadline to do that. And they beat the deadline. On the other hand, on Twitter, he makes clear that he has no patience for government interaction, intervention to force certain kinds of taxation or other policies that would mandate reductions. But he, he does believe in it. He said that you know, there's been these violent swings in the climate in, in Australia that you can't simply ascribe to chance. Uh, and yet his news organizations, if you read his Australian papers, they absolutely bludgeoned uh, the centrist but left of center uh, labor government for taking some steps to do more than just sort of embrace corporate voluntary action. You know, there were some carbon emissions policies that were seen as relatively s- sensible. It involved some taxation, some consumption mm-hmm. issues. Some of it was similar to how we dealt with acid rain two d- decades ago under President George H.W. Bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but they pilloried him. Similarly, on Fox News, you know, you can see a rough equivalence of the number of people who talk about climate change existing or casting significant doubt on its existence. And the scientific community, as most people know by now, but you know that knowledge is shaped very much by what we see in the mainstream press. Sure. Uh, you know, there is fundamental agreement that it is occurring, and there's real disagreement about how that's going to play out and what it means. And that's not the debate as it's played out in the Murdoch press or on Fox News. Yeah, his evolution on that is very interesting, and I hope we'll come back to it, because I want to kind of ask you about the other myths sure. before we lose that idea, there being these five myths. One of them was that he only cares about profits, and, and, and really you say that's not the case. Well, uh, uh, he doesn't only care about profit. The New York, uh, excuse me, the Times of London has never made him a cent. Mm -hmm. The New York Post, which he's owned, I believe, since 1977, has never made him a cent. Uh, he, d he created, uh, this is a little bit like one of the other myths that it, things always turn to gold, but he created The Daily, which was a tablet-only experiment. And a lot mm -hmm. of people who really understand uh, uh, digital media and how people consume media and social media thought that this was misbegotten from the start. And I thought there were some real mistakes in how they approached it. And at the same time, uh, I thought, look, it's like Bell Labs. He's trying something. You know, he, even as he has print products, he's trying a daily newspaper that is available only on tablet. I kind of gave him Mark's, you know, credit for that. Uh, and that was something that, you know, he lost many tens of millions of dollars on and finally shut it down as a gesture to, to, to shareholders that he, he, he understood that he couldn't just do everything he wanted. Why do you think the Daily didn't work? Why didn't it take? I think that they ultimately, you know, when you're doing that and it happens to occur amid a, an incredible crash in advertising in print and digital, that's a problem. You know, the recession was a real problem, so he, you know, he had to figure out how to do things. I think that they ultimately uh, weren't able to figure out uh, whether they wanted it a completely walled garden that would be really like a magazine that you couldn't do much more than physically hand to somebody else, or whether there would be a way to share it online to try to draw people in. They didn't really want to do that because Murdoch is of the belief that if you're going to charge somebody, you really need to charge them for it. Uh, and yeah, it had a very confused presence to me. It I, had didn't, a, I didn't know whether I could read it or not. Right, so, and so yeah. that, that's the problem. And the people inside were desperate to figure out a way to create a mirror site that you could then share on Twitter and you could do other things. And really, literally, you'd see tweets saying, oh my God, there's this really cool thing that, that my boyfriend wrote hmm. on the daily and sorry you can't read it here. Yeah. And that's, that's not actually a great advertising pitch. <laughs> no. So one of the other myths that you say, that people tag him with this idea that he's been bad for journalism. Um, and you say that, you know, that he, he doesn't destroy good journalism, or hasn't. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, th these were myths, so you had to construct them in a way so that uh, it, it seemed as though you were destroying these uh, sacred cows entirely. I wouldn't say uh, he, uh, he uniformly destroys good journalism. Actually, if you look at the Wall Street Journal, uh, it is not clear to me that I think they have something in the order of seven to 800 uh, journalists in, on the editorial side. And... Uh, uh, I don't think that had the Bancrofts continued to control uh, Dow Jones as a publicly traded company that you could have that many journalists there. I think he sustained the journal. I think it has a sophisticated and smart international report that is more ambitious, perhaps, than, than what preceded uh, his, his uh, proprietorship there. I think that uh, he's more interested in politics. The headlines are punchier. Uh, the graphics are a bit more engaging. And the use of photographs were, you know, the journal was really, I think, uh, charming, but something of a holdout in an archaic look. And He's really brought it along. That said, yeah. you know, even at the journal, you know, I found several dozen instances where the two top editors named... Several dozen. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, right. and these were offered to me as sort of yeah. uh, representative samples rather than the full catalog mm -hmm. of, uh, of the best hits. But, uh, you know, there were instances in which reporters said, gosh, he's pulling us 
to the or the two top editors, one in Australia and the other, Gerard Baker, now the editor-in-chief, uh, former Times of London columnist and editor. They're pulling us to the right each time on these stories, you know, by raising questions. And some of the questions are smart ones, but they're never doing it ever pulling it to the left. They're never pulling the Democrat up higher in the story. They're never asking the question about whether there are ties with, with the Republican to industry. It's always in one direction. And at a certain point, it felt to, to a large number of the reporters and editors, many of whom still work there, that their report was being pulled to the right. And whether that meant they were in the center that they always said that they were, or whether they actually ended up being on the right, is a matter of dispute between those editors, uh, the top editors, and a lot of their reporting staff. Let's shift over. Uh, across the pond a little sure. bit. You know, the open, your opening scene in the book, you have Murdoch in this luxury hotel room apologizing uh, and, and claiming this is, you know, that he's humbly apologizing to the parents of Millie Dowler. This is uh, a murder victim in, in England. 13-year-old. And he's apologizing, really, for his journalists having hacked into her phone messages and also erasing some of the messages before the police could before the police could see them. Um, why was this scene key to you? It's, it's how, you, how you start the book. Uh, I thought it was a pivotal moment for a variety of reasons. It gets to the question of family, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and I'll explain why in a moment. Uh, it gets to the question of, uh, you know, this was the thing that he testified, uh, was, made him the most, he said, this is the most humble day in my life. And, uh, uh, you know, he was essentially apologizing to the nation and to the parliament during that testimony. In this private moment, the people in the room involved uh, himself and advisor Will Lewis, who used to be editor of the Telegraph, whom he had hired as an executive. Mark Lewis, no relation, who was the lawyer for these, uh, uh, the, the family uh, of this uh, murdered girl, and the sister and the parents of this murdered 13-year-old. In 2002, it was a national story. You know, if you think of how uh, Kaylee Anthony, Anthony and Casey Anthony was sort of chewed up much of uh, cable news. You know, similarly, the tabloids thought about this young disappeared 13-year-old uh, who had vanished after school and. Uh, you know, it was set off an intense scramble for coverage in this competitive market. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing that uh, amazed me about it in some ways is, you know, Rupert Murdoch, for all of his connection with the common man, almost never meets with him or her. Hmm. You know, has really no sense of the day-to-day life and the people... He doesn't get out of the pub and have a pint with... Uh, uh, not the way it works so, so much, no. Okay. He's, he's on the phone with it, whatever time zone it's morning, he's on the phone with the tabloid editors there to see what they're doing. Like, yeah. that's how he spends his free time if he can. Uh, but, you know, it was a moment at which he was seeing in person people who do not deal with the press, people who have sought no celebrity, people who have no power, just everyday people, and he is having to confront the impact of the journalism at his prized possession. Hmm. And something that I think, you know, the book argues, you know, is in in many ways a a, a consequence of the culture that he created. And uh, not that he ordered this in any way, but that it it, it is linked to who he is and what those tabloids are like. And uh, that's not a confrontation he gets to do. In that moment, you know, Mark Lewis, the lawyer for the the family, says, you know, I know you know a lot about me, but I know a lot about you too. And it's a very interesting introduction to his, what's going to be a rebuke on the victim's behalf, because he has just learned, although it's not yet public, that the news of the world had 
paid for private investigators to follow him, the lawyer, to see if they could find dirt on him, to discredit him, and they had been seeking to make the case and made the case in court that he had been having an affair with another lawyer for another set of victims and therefore he should be disqualified. And they were seeking to target him because he was the most effective, although an unknown guy before this case, the most effective lawyer in, in England on this topic. He was absolutely fearless because he knew that as long as he didn't care about what they published about him in print, he was invulnerable. The moment he started caring, he'd be very vulnerable. Mm. It turned out there's no proof that he did have this affair, but that really didn't matter. They were trying to make this case in court and make it stick. So he said, I know you know about me, meaning I know you've been following me and my family, <laughs> but I know about you too, and your mother would be ashamed. Now his mother was by that point over 100 years old, probably the most venerated person in Australia. She was a dame of the, of the realm, I guess, uh, and she... Uh, She's considered probably the best, biggest benefactor off the Mur Murdoch millions in certainly the city of Melbourne and possibly the country. You know, when she died, it was essentially a state event uh, for, uh, for the state of Victoria where Melbourne is. Uh, Melbourne is. And uh, Murdoch, interestingly, doesn't rise the bait about his mother. He says, well, my father. My father would be ashamed. And it's clear to him that this connection, this is what matters to him most. The respect of his father, uh, a, a loving but much older figure whom, who, who died you know, when he was a young man and that for him this was all bound up in family and he's sitting across from these parents thinking about the loss of their child and uh, for him it is a brief moment of connection with people who could not be more universes apart. Well you take us through in the book the, you know, the difficulty that, that uh, Rupert Murdoch felt in the, just the dealing with these, this cascade of charges that kept coming out over what came to be called Hacking Gate, I guess. And one of those was the closure of News of the World, which was uh, you know, a newspaper that was fundamental to his operation in the UK. Uh, and they had to shut it down. You write that for much of the scandal, uh, the, the key thing he, his people were trying to do was protect a certain executive, Rebecca Brooks. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, and they did for a while until even she became expendable. Um, I take it you're following her trial? Uh, it's an amazing trial. Rebecca Brooks was... Uh, 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 showed up at, in her early 20s at News of the World and worked her way up in very short time indeed to be one of the youngest editors of a tabloid in, in modern history in, in the UK. And she was really good at it. She was merciless toward her staff. Uh, you know, uh, you hear stories from reporters who worked for one, you know, uh, one of the stories is that they, they all took, you know, essentially Gatorade jars into vans when they'd be staked out outside the girlfriend of some famous soccer player or, you know, cabinet member or politician because they were afraid that if they went to, to take a leak at the pub down the down the block and they missed the guy coming out of the apartment that you know they would be so berated they'd probably lose their jobs you know they, they, she, she read with fear it was a great tabloid editor approach you know she was very good at what she did she was then uh, first in news world then she led the sun uh, tabloid as well she then went on to become the ceo of you know murdoch's uh, newspaper empire in the uk mm -hmm. uh, and you know she she went to the pajama 40th birthday party for the wife of Prime Minister Gordon Brown. Hmm. You know, she wrote Rupert Murdoch's toast to his own actual daughter, Elizabeth Murdoch, for her 40th birthday party. And didn't Prime Ministers attend her wedding? Prime Minister Cameron, I believe, attended her oh. wedding, which was to an, an, uh, an Oxford College classmate, I believe, or an Eton classmate hmm. of the Prime Minister. Uh, Charlie Brooks is her current husband. <coughs> you know, she's somebody who trafficked in power and influence and flattery for people who could do good things for her and for the Murdoch realm. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, she, she was so integrated in the, in the political elite that it, it, in disentangling and looking at it now in retrospect, it's pretty clear that the political elites and the, the news elites, particularly the Murdoch elites, 
essentially worked in each other's self-interest to a great deal at the time. Uh, you know, first uh, forging an alliance with the labor folks and then switching it over to Cameron when they thought he'd be a better uh, horse to back. Uh, but both sides, both the politicians and, and, and the journalists, it seemed to me, lost the notion of the connection with the public, hmm. you know, and, and what service they were providing there. Uh, in 1989, Rupert Murdoch gave a talk at what's called the McTaggart Lecture in Scotland uh, every year. It's sort of the biggest industry uh, conference in the UK. And he, at one point, he said, you know, uh, that his sense of a public service was any service you provide that the public is willing to pay for within the law. <laughs> and for it's a different concept than you'd hear from The Guardian or The New York Times or even from his own Times of London. Uh, it's just a different, but it's a different concept of what journalism is about and why many people do it. Uh, many of the folks at his tabloids lost the phrase within the law. <laughs> they just thought any service we can provide that the public will pay for that we're not punished for, you know, is a public service. And now Brooks is on trial for what are the charges against Brooks her? is on trial for, uh, for uh, conspiracy to commit hacking, and the Millie Dollar case is very much a part of that. Prosecutors this, in, <laughs> you know, this very week are presenting uh, uh, evidence that she was in constant minute-by-minute -minute contact with the news desk. She's like, well, I was in Dubai, so I couldn't know anything about the hacking of that thing. But it turns out her cell phone logs show she was in pretty much constant contact with top editors there who were aware of the hacking, mm. according to the evidence being presented in court this, this month. Mm. Uh, she, so she's on trial for hacking. She's on trial for corruption to, uh, uh, excuse me, for conspiracy to commit corruption. Uh, you know, police officers took, uh, uh, according to the evidence that seems quite credible, uh, uh, significant uh, bribes on a fairly regular basis. Uh, you know, it's a small minority of police, but a large number of public officials having done this uh, to get information that under law in Britain is private. Uh, and people in other, you know, the defense ministry and other places are accused of having participated in that as well. And she's also on trial for, uh, for conspiracy to conceal evidence, basically, to tampering with evidence. Uh, mm -hmm. In July 2011, when all this was having out, you know, her assistant and the head of security for News International, the, the, which was then the name for the British newspaper arm of the Murdochs, uh, hauled out 11 cartons of her documents under somebody else's name and started destroying them and said, we didn't realize that you had wanted that. <laughs> and uh, also were involved, uh, uh, her husband was involved in basically trying to toss a laptop into a dumpster and <laughs> got in an argument as to whether or not he had done it on purpose. And the police, <laughs> police didn't take very kindly to that. So there's a lot, you know, and we should point out that she's not the only one from we should point out two things. We should point out that she's pleaded not guilty to this and it's yeah. not proven. And the second thing is there's, there's an array of people on trial with her, including Andy Coulson. And it's this a very interesting embodiment, not somebody who was as personally close to Murdoch. You know, she was a surrogate daughter. Colson was, you know, a, a capable new tabloid editor. Uh, he's on trial for both hacking and for corruption. But uh, he was required to resign in 2007 when two men went to jail for hacking into the phones of the princes, which was really the first legal uh, moment at which there were consequences for this. News International said, we didn't know about any of this turned out not to be true. News International said, this is isolated case. That turned out very much not to be true. Uh, but uh, these two guys went to jail and they said, we'll cauterize this. Uh, Andrew Coulson was then editor of the News of the World and he said, I knew nothing of this, but it happened on my watch. I must resign. David Cameron was desperate to figure out a way as the head, as, you know, as he, with his rise to the head of the conservative party to win the Murdoch newspapers, all four of them, back to his side of the ledger for upcoming elections. So he brings in Andrew Coulson because that mind understood the Murdoch world and he was still very close with uh, Rebecca Brooks and brought him on board to be the head of PR for the conservative party and then brought him on board into 10 Downing Street 
to be the head of communications. So you think of Jay Carney basically being on trial for hacking and corruption while he was a Washington bureau chief for Time magazine. You know, that might give you some sense of how weird that is for br the British. It was also revealed in recent days, as you may have read in the LA Times or other places, that Rebecca Brooks and, and Andrew Coulson had a six-year affair. Uh, so it's not... There's no evidence to suggest that that affair continued while he was in 10 Downing Street as top aide, the prime minister. But if there's any indication, not, not, not subtle, by the way, of the way in which the media and political elites were working hand in glove, uh, that liaison would suggest it. <laughs> well, for us here in the United States, you know, is this all just sport to observe this or does it matter, do you think, in, in, in us assessing our media here? You know, and Michael Wolff says that, he, you know, um, uh, that Wolf, Murdoch has essentially beaten the rap, personally. And, and Wolff uh, was a, a biographer. He wrote a book that came out, I believe, in late 2008, 2009. He writes for mm -hmm. uh, a number of magazines for USA Today and others. Exactly. Uh, look, Murdoch would say, well, look, we took real consequences. We killed News of the World. But, you know, they created The Sun on Sunday, which replaced it. Um, so instead of having 40% of uh, newspaper circulation, they have maybe 37 to 38% in, in national newspaper circulation. And by the way, they registered the Sun on Sunday <coughs> URL within about 72 hours of the breaking of the Miller Dallet thing. <laughs> so they were ready for it. You know, they thought, let's just do this and go. And so they kind of mitigated that. So damage. in some ways, it's business as usual. Well, it's not business as usual. Uh, I saw, uh, it was hilarious, today on Twitter, uh, uh, there was an article in The Guardian uh, that, that I saw a link to, and you go to it, and the editor of the Sun tabloid explains, well, you know, it's harder now. You know, we have reporters, and they, they've gone back to knocking on doors to get stories now that we can't pay people anymore, and we can't hack into their voicemails. And I thought, oh, well, geez, these are really extreme measures, but I guess times you're going to have everywhere. to do that. Times yeah. are tough all over. Yeah. So, you know, the, 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 it's, it's not business as usual. Politicians... Uh, aren't uh, going to race to be seen in the public eye embracing Murdoch. You know, David Cameron wins in 2010 with a minority of vote, but he manages to get a coalition. He becomes prime minister. The first private individual that is non-public official <coughs> that he greets at 10 Downing Street is Rupert Murdoch. Now, he does ask him to enter and leave by the back door so that <laughs> photographers can't take that picture, but he wants Murdoch to know that he's the person he's thinking of first. You know, he's, hey, honey, I'm thinking of you kind of thing. And... <laughs> You're not seeing that to the same degree. Now, did David Cameron just go to Murdoch's son-in-law's uh, uh, birthday party? Uh, after some hemming and hawing, he admitted, yes, he, he did do that. Mm -hmm. You know, there is still this fraternization. There's still this, they're so inextricably invested in each other's social lives, it's hard to di disentangle. But, uh, you know, Murdoch in this country hasn't had the same fallout. I think if there had been a single instance that had been proven of a 9-11 victim here, uh, who had been hacked, whether by British or by American uh, reporters for his empire, mm -hmm. that would have come down. But if you think about the runaway success of Fox, it is based on the idea that it's providing stories that maybe the mainstream media overlooks. Maybe it's the mainstream media tends to be, you know, CBS or New York Times or my newspaper, or excuse me, <laughs> my employer, or my old newspaper, or whatever. You know, all these guys are ignoring stories that the heart of the country forgets. But it's also so much based on argumentation that they didn't have the same pressure to break tabloid stories day after day. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's, it's just built on a different model. Well, uh, and Fox News, though, I think is, is the, you know, the, 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 Murdoch, the Murdoch product that we all think of here in the United States. So you uh, spend a lot of time in your book talking about the success of Fox News on, on the business side and, and how it's changed cable television, really. But you, you also describe um, 
I remember you, you were having a photo taken with Roger Ailes. Sure. This is after they surprisingly invited you to sit at their table at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Uh, what happened? Well, so uh, I'd done a story about, uh, I believe my friend Chris Klontz, uh, 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 well, I take it back, Chris was with me in Durham rather than Baltimore, so forgive me, but uh, uh, I did a story for the Baltimore Sun that embarrassed uh, uh, Fox News because it showed Geraldo Rivera prayed over a site that was uh, some 300 miles away uh, from where uh, he represented himself as being. He said he was praying over the dead bodies of American servicemen who had been killed by a U.S. bombing. He happened to be, you know, many miles away from where that happened, and that was mildly embarrassing. So uh, Fox News, you know, went after me, and Geraldo went after me, and they put me on a blacklist where nobody inside the entire company could talk to me. And then after about 15 months, they said, well, you haven't pulled your punches. We kind of admire that. Let's turn the page and move on. And I kind of respected that. So they did invite me to uh, the White House Correspondents' Dinner as a guest, and the Sun paid my my bill, or, you know, the equivalent of my ticket's cost, and I, you know, drank and ate with them without guilt, and it was a very inside joke to other reporters, and to the very small number of people who would pick up on that as sort of a, 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 an edgy thing to do. Uh, some years later, then, they invite me to the, the launch party at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York uh, for Fox Business uh, Network, and this was a great night for... Uh, for Ailes, you know, it was a way in which um, Murdoch's saying, I'm, I'm really doubling down on you and we're going to go after CNBC because, you know, CNBC, why those guys are in the tank for leftists, which I, I don't think is an accusation often made, but nonetheless, uh, you know, they felt they would bring a Fox brand of, to financial news and that they do wonderful because Ailes is actually quite brilliant at broadcasting. Uh, you know, so I, I meet Mr. Uh, Murdoch and I try to convince him to come on uh, with, with, you know, Renee Montaigne and Steve Inskeep on Morning Edition. He says, oh, I don't think you'd find me very interesting. And I said, I, I think you underestimate yourself. But uh, uh, I then went on and saw Roger Ailes and I said, Mr. Ailes, you know, congratulations. It's a great night, Dave Fulkenflick. Good to see you again. He says, oh, I know who you are. I said, oh, well, that, that's nice. And he says, oh, yeah, you're the guy who fucked us. <laughs> I said, uh, Which you can't say on NPR. Well, but I can on C-SPAN, uh, thankfully. Right. <laughs> it's cable. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, I said, I, I really don't look at it that way. I mean, he didn't have to explain what he was referring to. I said, I really don't look at it that way. I reported the facts. And he says, oh, people like you always say things like that. <laughs> and I thought, you know, people like me, I mean, I'm a reporter. And, you know, I know Fox has a different way of approaching things. But don't you guys have reporters, too? <laughs> it, was pretty, it was a very funny exchange. And then a photographer came up and it kind of broke the, 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 the mood a little bit. And it was funny. But, you know, he doesn't forget anything. He's very combative. He thinks of you not as you did a story that harmed us, but, oh, you, our guy, tried to screw us. You know, and it was as though I set out to do that. I didn't make Geraldo do anything. You know, he presented me with this incredible gift. <laughs> so, uh, well, you talk about the whole organization really is combative in that sense. And you know, I think it was your revelation about the sock puppets out on the web of sure. people from Fox setting up aliases so they could comment on stories about Fox across the web and on blogs. Uh, tell us about that. Well, there's a, sort of a madness that took hold. I mean, and I, I do think that there are two ways. If you really want to understand what Rupert Murdoch thinks, you can read the New York Post, you can read The Sun in London, and it's a pretty good reflection of how he feels inside. I think if you want to understand what Roger Ailes is thinking, you know, you can watch Fox and Friends in the morning, which as, as happy talk as it often is, uh, you know, they're going after his targets, they're hitting his talking points, and they are happy to do it. I mean, that's pretty pure. The PR department, unlike any shop I've ever dealt with, with you know, people spin, people mislead you, people cast things in light, they might uh, denigrate uh, uh, their competitors, but 
Fox News is just a different world. It's, it's completely divorced of any notion of the values that, that ostensibly a media company has to embrace in order to be seen to be serving the public and the public good, even as it makes a ton of money. So Fox News guys got into the, what, to my mind, is sort of a degree of frenzy for a number of years where their PR people not only had to do all the things everybody else did, but late at night they had to spend their time, and often during the day, uh, on the blogs, rebutting every single blog posting that was negative about their shows, their take, their, their talent. Fine. They then had to do that for the ones that were neutral, so they were insufficiently praised their shows, their t whatever. Then they had to go into the comments. And it didn't matter how big or how small the following were of the blogs, they had to go in the comments. And they did this under aliases. One PR person told me uh, uh, she had acquired 20 aliases. Another PR person had <coughs> over 100 just fake names so that Fox Nation writ large, that they had fans who were crazy about their things and they would swarm you, you know, if you did something against them. They had to, and they had to take measures because there was this uh, paranoia, which is a, another alien trait, uh, that people would figure out it was coming from Fox. So uh, one person had to buy on her own uh, Visa or MasterCard uh, a, uh, you know, one of those thumb drives that you plug in for wireless access so that the IP address couldn't be traced back to a News Corp or a Fox account. <laughs> Another one uh, had to use, uh, and I, that was true for a number of people, they had to use repurposed laptops bought from like secondhand stores so that none of the equipment would say Fox on it. Uh, they had to use an AOL uh, dial-up account because they thought that would be tougher. In the age of widespread broadband, you know, they had to use the AOL account because they thought that would be much tougher for somebody to trace that it was actually a Fox uh, Well, at least they could only post a it. few then because it was right. so slow. So That's, was, uh, yeah, right. Uh, it, it slowed yeah. them down. But in, in some ways, that actually w is kind of humorous when you say it out loud. You know, I, by the way, one of the PR people said that they were all No, I'll say it was humorous to read as well in right. the book. So. Well, there's that. But, you know, there's, they were called at 2, 3 in the morning by their boss, Irina Briganti, who is sort of the number two PR person and now is the top PR person there, saying, why have you embarrassed me? And the person who was woken up said, well, what have I done? And Briganti said, you know, you didn't rebut to such and such comment. And so the person scrolled down and said, that's comment like 68 on a <laughs> blog that nobody reads. What's your problem? And she said, you can't let any of it go unrebutted. <laughs> so that's the, the warfare mindset. Much worse is what they did at times to reporters who deigned to write stories they didn't want done. So in 2008, uh, you know, you've got this incredible primary season with Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, two heavyweights, and cable ratings rise for CNN quite significantly. And that's a story because Fox had been just giving everyone a drubbing since about 2001. So Tim Arango, the New York Times, goes to do a story about it. And... Uh, Arena Briganti at one point just essentially says, you don't want to do this, you have no idea what they can do. And he says, what do you mean? She's like, just don't do this. So he writes a story, it's a rating story, folks, that they're a dime a dozen. <laughs> and uh, the morning that it ran, he got a voicemail message from a guy who ran a uh, website called Jossip, a gossip website, uh, no longer exists, and uh, said, you know, give me a call, I'm writing a little thing about you. And within an hour and a half, there was a posting that said, you know, did Tim Arango just come back from rehab? You know, he's just been treated for substance abuse, and you know, here are all the ways in which people have thought that he was probably a druggie over time. And uh, towards the end story, they also said, you know, by the way, he's doing this real suck-up stories on every uh, cable news executive in town because he's desperate for a job on TV. Hmm. Now, that TV part, there's no foundation for. He's now a very respected uh, foreign correspondent uh, based in Istanbul for the New York Times. Uh, but as he told me when I was reporting on the book, you know, five years sober. He actually had gone for substance abuse treatment. It had nothing to do with his reporting. It was basically a punitive effort to, to say, you know, you did this story about ratings, we told you not to. This is what happens. And also a warning to other reporters, saying this is the kind of thing you can do. 
even more astonishing, I had no idea of this when, uh, when I was setting out to write this chapter, uh, there's a guy named Matthew Flam who covers the TV industry for Crane's Business New York. It's a trade publication. And uh, he set out at roughly the same time to do a similar story, and he couldn't get anywhere with, with Fox. They wouldn't even return his call for a no comment. So uh, he, uh, <laughs> he got an email from a senior producer for The O'Reilly Factor, and they said, you know, I heard you're digging around about this. You're right, and it's flipping people out. The ratings thing for CNN is flipping people out. We're going to put uh, our, our anchors to the side. Britt Hume will be an analyst instead of an anchor, and we're going to put in Bill O'Reilly as the chief anchor for the conventions. Now, Fox, for whatever you want to say about Fox and, and the, the sort of strong uh, thinking that often goes into their story selection, they, they, they have their news anchors time and again anchor their coverage, even as MSNBC had, you know, Chris Matthews and, and uh, Keith Olbermann anchor some of their convention coverage. They said, no, we're going to have separation for the news events being anchored by our news people. This was a big change for Fox. They'd always drawn this strong line between these two things. And he said, you know, what does this mean? And they had emails back and forth, and he said, fine. He goes to his bosses and says, I can't get a second source. And the boss says, well, just put it online. Don't put it in print. This is what we call a big mistake. Uh, it turned out uh, that as soon as he put it up, there were a number of, uh, of uh, industry websites that had full quotes on the record from Fox saying, who would do that? Something that stupid. We would never, never put Bill O'Reilly as, as, as an anchor of this event. We wouldn't do that. If somebody is to believe that, what kind of credibility can you ascribe to them? That's somebody, you know, who doesn't understand what Fox is. And so he was set up. He was, he was set up. He was sandbagged. They had created the account. He called the woman, and he said, what the hell happened? And her response was, who are you? <laughs> and he said, you sent me an email. She said, I've never heard of you in my life. <laughs> and so they faked uh, an email. I've had this confirmed by people, uh, somebody who was inside Fox at the time, uh, to set him up to make him publish something false and to try to destroy his credibility for doing a story about ratings. Before we open it up to questions, uh, uh, we're here in Los Angeles, sure. and the Los Angeles Times is, uh, is, the owners have signaled that they would probably like to sell the LA Times. Is Rupert Murdoch um, interested in the LA Times? And, and if so, what do you think, how do you think he would be? Well, it's a sign of how sort of political uh, interests and the business interests uh, can align. You know, Murdoch has said, I think, to, to, the, to Meg James of the LA Times that um, he would be interested, but he doesn't think the regulators would allow him to do it at a time that he owns uh, two TV stations here in, in Los Angeles. Uh, it's been a couple of years since he said that, though. So it has. Uh, you know, he has always been uh, interested in doing the things he wants to do and allowing the regulators to catch up with him. Hmm. So for example, in New York, he owns the New York Post and he owns uh, a money-losing proposition. He was, by the way, embraced by politicians of both arms when he came in when the two previous owners of the Post in the early 90s essentially went belly up financially. So you know, there are ways in which you know, he is sustaining something that may not have a pure financial logic hmm. uh, uh, in New York. Uh, and the Los Angeles Times, I think, as in its smaller form does have a, more of a logic. It's just not a huge profit maker in the same way. But, uh, you know, he basically has two TV stations in New York as well. He was given a waiver to allow him to own all those properties in New York, and that waiver expired a while ago, and he still owns it. So, you know, I think he's shown himself in, in a variety of ways to be willing to do things and allow regulators to find a path to do it. It would be a fascinating thing if he did. I mean, think about it. The LA Times is, you know, the biggest, you know, general interest national, uh, excuse me, uh, general interest daily paper that covers the entertainment industry with a strong and keen eye. Mm -hmm. And for him to own that when his 
vast wealth is now sustained not really by newspapers, but by that entertainment wing, you know, is complicated at best. Uh, I think that, you know, he would be able to sustain uh, a news staff that might be larger than, you know, hedge fund managers or other kinds of investors that might come in to take this off uh, Tribune's hands. But, uh, you know, uh, one of his uh, former uh, reporters, Ian Johnson, for whom he, he personally intervened to help get a visa to allow him to keep reporting in China after Johnson had displeased authorities, nonetheless called the deal uh, that the journal essentially struck with Murdoch a Faustian bargain. Mm. It's that you have a guy with deep pockets and he'll protect you and he'll fight for you in a lot of ways, but you're doing it with somebody who's willing at times to compromise or, or, or affect the coverage that, that his uh, news outlets put out there. Was it his quote, which I thought was a really good quote of the book, that, uh, that under Murdoch, the journal has become more good but less excellent? It wasn't his quote, but yes, it was a former uh, top executive at the, at the Wall Street Journal who told that to that me. Was a, that was a good quote. How do you feel about taking some questions I'd love from, to. from your Los Angeles audience? You've been a terrific guest host on Reliable Sources, the CNN program, which covers the media. I was wondering, is there a chance you could become the permanent host of that program? And also, could you tell us the background of the name Folkenflick? I don't know. It's been an interesting exercise, and it's been uh, uh, you know, generous of them to invite me down. It's given me uh, new insight into what it <coughs> takes to do that kind of job and to be on live television, and I've, uh, I've appreciated the opportunity to do that. I, you really got to ask them. I think that's their call. Uh, and you know, it would very much depend on, on what it meant. I'm not okay. looking to... to, to to leave NPR anytime soon. It's been a fantastic home, even at times uh, uncomfortable as I cover my own institution, but it's been a tremendous place, and the fact they've given me the, the latitude to do that uh, uh, with, with full you know, intellectual honesty and reporting, I think shows their values in a way that I, I appreciate and admire. Second part of your question, uh, I did a story, we, we, we as a family uh, you know, haven't really known. Uh, we explored it once with a, a professor of old Germanic at Yale and he kind of came up with ideas about clouds or something and you know, nobody knew. <laughs> so I did a story once about Baltimore Hebrew University and as a thank you, the president had one of his aides send uh, a note to me and I came out to their archives. Uh, they've got a nice Judaica archives there and they have a book of Jewish surnames and so it was in there, which amazed me. Uh, you know, there are, I think, about two dozen Falcon flicks in the U.S. <laughs> uh, and uh, the book said that it meant Falcon's Eye. And I said, whether or not that's accurate, I'm going with it. <laughs> Many years ago, I met a guy who knows Rupert Murdoch outside the office, outside of work. Sure. And he says to me, out of the blue, this guy Murdoch, he's not a happy man. <laughs> not a happy guy. It's all about control with him. You've met the guy. What do you think? There are times where he has felt more familiarly inclined toward his newspapers than his adult children. You know, he's a complicated cat. You know, he's not given to introspection or self-reflection. Uh, his kids love him, but there are times they kind of hate him, too. You know, James, you know, feels that his father, who's 82 years old, should have given up the reins as CEO several years earlier, probably before the scandal broke, and James would have been out of there. You know, he wouldn't have been caught up in it. You know, James, who's his younger son of the two, uh, really had his chance, his glide path to take over uh, as, as chairman and CEO of, of News Corp exploded in the Millie Dollar uh, scandal because he had given assurances that Parliament no longer finds credible uh, and because he had privately approved, as The Guardian showed uh, in its relentless reporting, he had proved a secret payoff not only to keep a case out of court, but to keep knowledge of it out of the public eye. 
uh, so that police could continue to maintain, even though some of their investigators were compromised, police could continue to maintain that, there, that this was limited to just a few isolated cases like the Royals. So he has been driven by a sense of grievance. He also has fun. I mean, he, 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 he sees it fun when he lands a punch in, in, in his publications against uh, somebody he thinks deserves it. Hmm. You know, he thinks it's fun to take down a celebrity a notch or two. He, he's one of the, you know, the thing is he employs an army of gossip columnists and reporters, but there's no bigger gossip than he is. <laughs> he loves the stuff. So, you know, it's, he's, a, he's a complicated character. Uh, you know, Rebecca Brooks, who we mentioned before, she's the surrogate daughter. Uh, I think he has probably had, had it when he had a closer relationship than he did with Elizabeth Murdoch. Uh, whom he kind of overlooked. And, and Robert Thompson has been seen as a surrogate son. You know, he wanted desperately Lachlan to come back from Australia and run the new Slim Down News Corp. And Lachlan didn't want to do it, didn't appreciate the fact his father didn't protect him from the infighting of Peter Chernin, who was then president of News Corp, and of, and of Roger Ailes. They sort of set these little landmines for him to sort of set off. Why did he buy the vineyard in Bel Air? Why does he want a, a, you know, a few acres of grapes in Los Angeles? Well, uh, it, you know, it was interesting to me because the, the decision that he did to buy this vineyard, uh, which I think was in, the price tag was in excess of uh, $28 million, uh, was almost to the dollar the same as the price tag he put on the yacht that he used to gallivant about the oceans with Wendy with. So you know, he basically said, well, this is what I used to enjoy with my wife, who I'm now about to divorce. This will be a new place for me to forge a new life in my ninth decade and you know so i'm gonna really enjoy that there so you know he uh i think it was just a question of him wanting a, a fresh start and a fresh uh, a fresh environs <laughs> what do you think about the reputation or even criticism that fox news has in terms of the their women on the news channels and showing more skin and more cleavage or even shorter skirts and more legs what do you think of that and were you able to talk to Rupert Mur Murdoch about that? I wasn't able to talk to him about that in part because he just didn't want to talk to me at all. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I think Roger Ailes would hear what you're saying and say, yes, and, you know, uh, uh, certainly, uh, uh, you know, television is a visual medium and Roger takes advantage of that. Uh, he likes his uh, men confident and his women attractive. Uh, there is something... There's a show called uh, The Five at Five now that replaced Glenn Beck, uh, and it's usually about four to one or three to two conservative to, to, to liberal. Uh, uh, and uh, usually the mainstay liberal is this guy, uh, Bob Beckel, who ran uh, Walter Mondale's campaign in 1984, which is, I think, by concession, one of the least fruitful presidential campaigns of all time. Uh, and then he was personally caught up in personal scandal. And Ailes loves redeeming people, particularly on the left, who have been in trouble and therefore will owe him for their resurrection. Beckel's not a dumb guy, but, you know, this is who he is. He's not the most forceful advocate for liberalism or representative of the Democrats that you could find in America. Uh, one of the things that I learned, uh, 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 it just didn't happen to make the cut in the book, but uh, there's a camera that they have. Uh, and what they do is basically they... they I'm told this is absolutely true. They sort of assort the women who are going to be on, because there's a slightly rotating cast of characters, although there are really some fixtures, by basically the degree of attractiveness, and particularly the degree of attractiveness for the legs. And I believe it's the seat on the front right where uh, they, having arranged this hierarchy, they put the woman with the best legs there, and they have a camera that goes directly for the legs. Mm -hmm. And so essentially they have what they call the leg cam, uh, and that is to accentuate the... Uh, the sleekness of design of that particular person on air. So if you're asking whether attractiveness uh, is a part of the formula, I would say you bet.
I'm curious of what you think is going to happen to the Murdoch empire post-Murdoch. When you talk to people there, they say, uh, you know, if Murdoch retires, or they say if Murdoch dies, because, you know, they don't, he doesn't believe he'll die, really. Uh, and uh, they don't want to in any way indicate that they might possibly disagree with the boss on this pivotal issue. Uh, there's no thought, however, to the idea that uh, absent Rupert, uh, you know, that it makes sense to hold on to all these newspapers. There's so many losing so much money. And in Australia, you know, he's dominant there. Again, he is 65 to 70% of the national newspaper market. So if, that, if, if you think, well, it doesn't really matter, they're scattered across the different cities. The way in which it matters is he sent Carl Allen, who was, used to be the editor of the Sydney Daily Telegraph in, in Australia, but has been for many years the editor-in-chief of the New York Post. He sent him back to Australia during the general election campaign this fall. And uh, it was one of the most punishing media campaigns against any political figure you've ever seen. Kevin Rudd was a center-left uh, prime Minister, who may well have deserved to lose and may well would have gone down without Murdoch lifting a finger. But every day on their tabloids and every day in, in the, the Australian, their sort of prestige national paper, they found new ways to represent him as immoral, ineffectual, uh, illegitimate, essentially, even though they had supported his rise to Prime Minister, you know, 2007, 2008. They turned against him, they went with the conservative guy. So the belief in Australia is that it, turned, it, it, it ensured, it locked the victory for Tony Abbott, who's the new prime minister. And even if Abbott would have won without them spending a dime, Abbott is of the belief that he owes that in a great part to Rupert Murdoch. And therefore, as certain decisions are coming up, can Murdoch obtain more than just the 50% in Foxtel, the major cable uh, operator and, and provider down there? You know, can Murdoch uh, fight off the government making a huge investment in uh, subsidizing broadband uh, internet access for everyone, which was this ambitious progress? program under Rudd and his, uh, his uh, labor allies down there, uh, you know, things that, that Murdoch doesn't like, you know, it matters that he has somebody in the prime minister's office that, that can make a difference. That political influence, however, is not how James Murdoch looks at the world. He wants the political influence. He doesn't want the newspapers. They've only been a headache. They've been a horrible scandal in England. Why not just cut it off and send it into the ocean? You know, uh, Lachlan didn't want to come back and run these things. I think that you know, investors didn't want them to do it. One of the biggest investors in News Corp, a guy named Don Yachtman, described uh, the new newspaper business to me as like an ice cube, which he said was melting fast. <laughs> so th this, these papers have in some ways a constituency of one. And uh, I don't think that News Corp uh, will look the same as it does uh, more than 18, 24 months after Murdoch's uh, departure. Do we have civil war within the company as soon as he... Well, you know, the company, here's the thing. You've got, the, the, you've got uh, uh, four adult children, three by his second wife, who really have been the ones who have been active. Uh, James uh, Lachlan, the older brother, Elizabeth Murdoch, who's a, quite a talented uh, uh, head of her own production company that Murdoch bought just to try to get her back in the company. Television uh, production. At, uh, that's right. At, at, an, at what most people consider to be a wildly inflated price. Uh, and his daughter, uh, Prudence, by his first wife, who hasn't wanted to be involved in the politics of News Corp, and therefore is seen as sort of an honest broker in some ways, uh, because she's not personally ambitious. Uh, they control about 40% of the voting shares of News Corp. So along with a, a Saudi ally, and uh, Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, who is himself a media executive in the, in the Middle East, whom Murdoch has invested some of his own money in, uh, they control about 47% of votes. That shareholders can have almost no influence. So really, you have these four adults, you know, after Murdoch goes, who are going to have to decide what they want. The, com the two companies, 21st Century Fox, which was spun off in June, and the new smaller News Corp to look like.
My name is Lisa Solomon, and just for full disclosure, I worked for that liberal bastion of CNBC Asia for about 20 years, and I have a brother at the Wall Street Journal. Um, and so my question is, we used to kind of joke at CNBC that someday we'd all just be working for Murdoch in, in media. And I'm going to end on sort of a larger question, which is just do you think that's the case and the future of objective journalism as we know it? Um, what's your view on it? I sort of have a negative view, and I'm hoping that you have a more positive view so we can be uh, positive going forward. Thank and since you. our charge when he came in here was to answer the question, uh, did Rupert Murdoch save journalism? You could kind of work that in as well. Sure. Uh, well, it's interesting. You know, is, is he a savior for journalism now? No. Has he sustained <clears throat> some, some excellent reporting done at a number of his projects? Absolutely. Did he do that with an eye to be a philanthropist in so doing or public-minded, I think less so than he wanted to be part of the both uh, helping to shape the conversation with elites and the public and to determine sort of outcomes with, 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 with top officials. So some very good journalism happened as a consequence of his own ambitions uh, and his own interests and also just kind of his own instincts. He just loves this stuff and he wants mm -hmm. to be involved in it and I don't think you can disentangle his love of the tangible paper. Uh, I think that, that Murdoch has shaped a lot of the journalism beyond his own newsrooms. If you look at MSNBC, it only made a dollar you know, when it started to bank hard left in sort of homage to what Fox had accomplished on the right. It's nowhere near as profitable, but it, it makes sense. Uh, I, I don't know that that means it's admirable, but it makes sense. It's coherent in a way it never really was before. It was always lurching to figure something out. I think if you look at the New York Daily News, uh, it's run now by the former, the last editor of News of the World. I mean, you sound like you know journalism well, so I'm not telling you anything new here, but the New York Daily News actually is a crisper paper than it was with this guy running it because he understands how tabloids work. I now sort of put the two papers side by side most weekdays and say, all right, who won? And the New York Daily News wins the headlines much more often than it used to as a result of having essentially a guy who came up in, in Murdoch newsrooms. He was, uh, uh, he was the deputy editor under Carl Allen at the New York Post and the last editor of the News of the World in the last effort to claim that it was being cleaned up. Um, but you look at the New York Times, you know, the Wall Street Journal under Murdoch, he said, well, the Times is liberal. He's like, we're going to be down the middle. We're going to provide a place conservatives and middle Americans, even liberals can get a more honest report. And it also competed with the Times much more head to head on general news, on political news, which has been its bread and butter. And on it, it even has a New York report as kind of a tweak in the eye. Now, they, they found some juvenile ways to go about this too. Uh, Robert Thompson, uh, uh, they not only had a story commissioned to say, why is it that women find sensitive and even effeminate men so attractive? But they used a, a picture of the face of uh, Arthur Sulzberger, the head of the New York Times from the eyes down as the illustration of that. And that was a very intentional screw you. Uh, and so he brought that to them. I think you find executives at the Times now saying, you know, uh, if people believe that we reflect a cosmopolitan sensibility, there may be some truth to that. And it may be that, you know, we are a New York state of mind across the country and across the world. Uh, and if people think that's coastal elites, it's not how we do our business. If people think we're liberal, it's not what we think we're doing and it's not why we're doing it. But we can understand that. You would not have heard that prior to Murdoch taking over uh, uh, the, 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 the Wall Street Journal. And I think that even as the digital sphere, you know, the Ariana Huffingtons and the Andrew Breitbarts sort of pushed people to be more declarative and much more opinionated online, he sort of also created space for that by making cable news about, you know, the feverish pitch of the opinions rather than about the most convincing recitation of facts reported and learned. And uh, he defined in some ways that general interest major newspapers would have this Anglo-Australian sensibility that it was okay to be more voiced. 
And the Times is sort of coming to terms with that because of what Murdoch has done in opposition. So I think he's done more to shape our mainstream media than a lot of people recognize, both in, uh, in tribute to and in resistance to uh, the way he's doing it. The true saviors, I think, are gonna be these billionaires who did not come up in newsrooms, uh, possibly people like Pierre Omidyar, who co-founded eBay and is going to create a site of a much, much more adversarial opinion, I think, uh, focused uh, journalism. Uh, it, it might be somebody like Jeff Bezos, who used his personal fortune to buy the Washington Post, or a guy like Chris Hughes, who bought the always ailing New Republic with the billions that he made uh, as one of the first guys at Facebook. You know, that there's going to be a new sense where people are just native to the digital sphere and get it and those guys are gonna have the answers. It's why the subtitle is The Last of the Old Empires. And I, you know, it's my hope that you and I see some new ones as well. Thank you, David. Thank yeah. you, sir. Yeah.